History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 334th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we have another one of our haunted true crimes. Awesome. This is not one that we had already produced for our executive producers. It is brand new, and it is about the life and the murder and the haunting of Helene Kanabe. And let me just say, I'm really glad that I saw a Ghost Hunters episode that was on this because I would have pronounced her name, Nabe. You would have said Nabe. And they said Kanabe. So I'm assuming that's I'm assuming tomato. tomato. (laughs) (laughs) She had an extraordinary life that was cut short in a horrible murder that has been unsolved to this day. Probably why her spirit is not at rest. This episode was suggested by Michelle Rooney. But before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Lee, Lucas, Jeremiah, who has an I after the R, Medley, Carrie, Chris with a C-H, Mandy with a Y, and Kathy with an I-E from the Haunting History Podcast. It's a great podcast. You guys should check that out. Thanks for joining us, you guys. And now, this moment, Naughty. When the Soviet Union crumbled, many of its KGB documents found their way into public spaces. One such document that Diane found at CIA.gov from their reading room shares an event reported by the KGB that is unbelievable if true. The KGB materials claim that a low-flying spaceship in the shape of a saucer appeared above a Soviet military unit that was out doing maneuvers in Siberia. The group fired a missile at the UFO and brought it down. Five humanoid-looking creatures that were short with large black eyes and bulbous heads exited out of the downed UFO. This is already really weird, but it gets even more bizarre. These men were attacked by the aliens and all were killed but two. These two claimed that the five aliens merged into a single object that was spherical-shaped and then began to buzz and hiss and glow a bright white. That light seemed to flare and explode, and the soldiers that were exposed to it were petrified. 23 men were turned to stone that proved to be the same composition as limestone. The busted UFO and petrified men were taken away to a secret lab in Moscow. This CIA document also claimed that there are photographs to go with the report. And one CIA agent said that this was a horrific picture of revenge on the part of extraterrestrial creatures. A picture that makes one's blood freeze. The report doesn't say what happened to the aliens, but clearly they had no ship to take them away. Aliens morphing into a weapon that turns humans to stone is not only terrifying, but it certainly is odd. A 
And Kelly, you would normally be like, is this a report out of the Onion newspaper or something? It sounds like it. I was watching a program on the Science Channel and they were talking about this event and I was only half listening because I was working on some research. And when they started talking about these men being petrified and turned to stone, I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What What are they talking about? (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) And when I went in to look it up, it actually is on the CIA.gov official website. I know. That's so crazy. I have it linked up in the show notes. I don't know if it really happened or not, but the CIA has a document with details about it. Things that make you go, hmm. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. month of April on the 3rd and 4th in 1974, 148 tornadoes ripped through much of America, earning the name the 1974 Super Outbreak. Spring is the time of year when these storms rip through the Midwest. An outbreak is typically categorized as 6 to 10 twisters, and there can't be a break of more than 6 hours between reported tornadoes. This would be the second largest tornado outbreak on record for a single 24-hour period. It was actually the largest until 2011. It has always been the most violent. Thirteen states were affected. Tennessee, Ohio, Illinois, Kentucky, Indiana, Michigan, Alabama, Virginia, West Virginia, Mississippi, Georgia, North Carolina, and New York. Ontario and Canada was also hit. Thirty of the twisters hit the upper categories of E4 and E5 and caused roughly $843 million in damages, which would be $4.6 billion today. This was dwarfed in 2011 when that super outbreak had 362 tornadoes. That also occurred in April. Helene Kanabe was ahead of her time. She became a doctor in the early 1900s, and her specialty was in treating sexually transmitted diseases. She lived in the Delaware Flats in Indianapolis, Indiana. And this is where she would breathe her last. Helene was murdered, and to this day, the identity of her killer is a mystery. And that may be why her spirit is at unrest. Join us as we share about the history of the Delaware Flats, the Anthenaeum, and the life of this amazing woman and her tragic murder. Indianapolis had a streetcar system that helped get people living in the outer edges of town into town for work. The Delaware Flats apartments were located with a block of similar apartments in the 400 and 500 blocks of North Delaware Street. These apartments were designed by architect Charles A. Wallingford and completed in 1902. The Delaware Flats is three stories tall with a basement and low-pitched roof and was done in the Beaux Arts and neoclassical architecture styles. There were 18 five-bedroom flats. In 1911, contractor Lynn Milliken purchased the Delaware Flats for $46,250. That's That's a lot of money back then. That was a (laughs) lot of money back then. 
That same year, Dr. Helene Kanabe would be murdered in the Delaware Flats. Dr. Helene Kanabe was born in 1875 in Rugenwalder Munde, Germany, Prussia, which is now part of Poland. This was a time of struggle for power in Prussia, with the monarchy receiving a lot of pushback. This was also a time of not much freedom for women. And when Helene decided that she wanted to become a doctor, she knew she was going to have to go somewhere else because Prussia would not allow it at the time. Her early life had been a tough one. Her father had left her mother when she was still a baby, and then her mother passed away, so she was raised by her uncle. So in 1896, she moved to Indiana because she had heard that women could go to medical school there, but she needed to make some money and learn English. She spent four years as a seamstress and doing household things for the upper class, and in turn, they taught her English. She entered Butler University to prepare for medical school in 1900, and later that year, she attended the Medical College of Indiana. The courses were tough, but she maintained above a 75% grade and dissected every body part presented to her even as she continued to work to pay for her education. The professors were so impressed with her that one of them placed her as curator of the pathology museum and eventually she was instructing some underclassmen. Obviously, Kelly, since this was the early 1900s, you can imagine that these men that she was teaching were not very pleased with that idea. I would imagine so. (laughs) Yeah, it was unheard of for a woman to be teaching men like this. And so we think that says something about her. Certainly. She must have been, you know, extremely good at what she was doing and essentially kind of a prodigy, I would imagine. Absolutely. So the professors kind of overrode that whole idea that this is not something that women do and said, you know, we're going to go ahead and let her do it. Sure. She excelled that, that well. Plus, it takes something to be able to go into that position and not have the men who are pushing back against you make you feel like, I I can't do this. She must have been a very strong woman. Yes, I think she was. The problem we have here is there's not a whole lot of information about her, especially her early life. So it's been had to, you know, piece together and stuff. But just looking at some of the outer things, you can kind of figure out what kind of a woman she was. Certainly. She graduated as one of only two women in 1904. People described her as a vanguard, and this was only one of the reasons. Dr. Kanabe was a bit of an artist, and she started providing illustrations to medical books, and she continued to work as curator of the museum. And even though she wasn't paid to do this, she worked as a professor at the school. In 1905, she became the first woman to be appointed as a deputy state health officer in Indiana. She was a pioneer in Indiana when it came to rabies, too. This newspaper article from the Palladium in July of 1906 highlights this part of her career. Headline, Many Mad Dog Scares. State Officers' Inquiry. Announcement made that heads of dogs supposed to have been afflicted with rabies will be examined free. Richmond has in past summers had numerous mad dog scares and frequently animals have been killed, which were believed to be suffering from genuine rabies. The State Board of Health is preparing to pay special attention this summer to supposed cases of hydrophobia. Dr. Helene Kanabe, assistant state bacteriologist, has just returned from a visit to the Eastern Laboratories, where she made some special study under expert chemists. Dr. Kanabe saw some of the best-known specialists in the country at work on the heads of dogs that were supposed to have had rabies. Dr. Kanabe became the superintendent for the State Board of Health in 1908, and she left the board shortly after that to start her own community practice, where she offered services many times for bartered goods. The doctor worked with a variety of epidemics and pushed for better sanitation. And although she was expected to do more, she was never paid for what she was worth. But she loved this, and her passion had her traveling all of Indiana recommending sanitation practices and educating. 
part of that education was in sex education. <gasps> oh, my. <laughs> Which was very taboo at the time. There were many who were outraged that she was teaching about sexually transmitted diseases and how to prevent them. She focused much of her efforts in communities with people of color. There were some other things that she was outspoken about that probably put her in the crosshairs. When she left the State Board of Health, she said that they expected an employee in the laboratory to have a man's brain, but to be paid a woman's salary. Can you imagine back in the early 1900s, here you have a woman going, look, I am doing the same work as those men, and I'm not getting the same pay. And we're still having that issue today. <laughs> exactly. She was definitely ahead of her time, though. Good for Way her. Way ahead of her time. And especially, I mean, it's hard to even believe that she would be teaching sex education, much less talking about sexually transmitted diseases, because that right there screams promiscuous, <laughs> yes, promiscuous people running around and she's telling them how not to get it. Well, of course, back then they're just going to be like, well, if you get married and just have one partner, never going to have an issue. Right. And the fact that she was doing a lot of her practice in these lower income communities. And obviously they were because here she is bartering for good. So exactly. it's just like a country doctor almost. You bring me some eggs and I'll give you some medicine for your whatever. Yeah, I'll trade you my syphilis meds for your, your eggs. <laughs> Great. <laughs> hey, they needed it. I guess that's true. A brilliant career came to a tragic and gruesome end on October 25th, 1911. Dr. Helene Kanabe was found murdered in the Delaware Flats by a colleague named Catherine McPherson. Dr. Kanabe had a slit to her throat that was clearly dealt by not only a strong person, but this killer had skill with a knife. The killer had started on one side of her throat, taking care not to cut her carotid artery and continuing to the other side of her throat pressing deeply and hitting her spine. The doctor then choked to death on her own blood. So the way that I heard this described is that it was meant for her yeah, to choke on her blood. Like. How horrible. Yeah, I just, this is somebody, this is a rage killing for sure. Absolutely. She had a bruise on her thigh that suggested a struggle. The coroner ruled that she had been murdered, but the police initially dismissed this and went forward with this as a suicide. Seriously? Can you believe that? How the heck? I mean. How do you, I mean, I already, when people do, I mean, there Insane. are people who do commit suicide by slitting their own throats. Right, that but does not happen. like that. <laughs> but this deeply, I've uh -huh. never heard of anyone committing suicide, cutting their throat that deeply. Her head almost looked like it had been. Oh, okay. Okay. You know. Okay. That's enough. <laughs> Nothing had been stolen from the flat except for a silk kimono that the doctor had been wearing and the murder weapon was missing. So again, how did she kill herself? Did she make the knife and disappear? And steal her robe. <laughs> and steal her robe. I mean, she is very talented, which clearly means, of course, this was no suicide here. The police didn't have much to go on when they finally decided to pursue this as a murder. To complicate matters, McPherson had waited almost an hour before calling police and the crime scene had been contaminated by several people. We hear this so much back during that time. The same thing at the Veliskax murder house, which happened at about the same time, too. Right. Why were these crime scenes just open for people to tramp through? And who's doing that? I mean, I know that we rubberneck when we see an accident on the, the rubberneckers. Highway, but <laughs> I mean, if I heard that somebody's murdered in their house, I'm not going in there to check out the crime scene. Well, it sounds like many would, though. I guess. The first person they treated as a suspect was a witness who was a black janitor who lived below her. His name was Jefferson Haynes, and he lived in the basement with his daughter and a housekeeper. He told the police that he had heard footsteps above him and three screams, but that he was too afraid to investigate. They decided to arrest him and hold him, but they could find no motive other than their own bias, so they released him. 
And I'm not going to describe what that bias was, but the newspapers had a certain term that they used for it that they thought about people of color back then. Sure. Another theory was presented that perhaps a man having an extramarital affair had killed the doctor to silence her. The theory was put out in an article by the Brazil Daily Times on October 27th, 1911. Was her microscope and its high-powered lens pointing out awful evidence of man's sins, the indirect cause of the murder of Dr. Helene Kanabe? This may have been the case according to the opinion of Dr. Mary E. Ash, friend of the dead physician, and herself, like all women physicians, facing the problems of Dr. Kanabe. As a woman physician, for the vestitudes of the woman physician are different from those of the male man of medicine, Dr. Ash knows something of the conditions that Dr. Kaname contended with. There have been all sorts of theories advanced, said Dr. Ash, but I believe the police might find in the fiend a man, the secrets of whose soul were unbared to his wife through the microscope of Dr. Kanabe in her work as a pathologist. So basically, she found out some man had a sexually transmitted disease and was going to tell his wife or something, and so he silenced her, I guess. Right. In theory. Which is a motive. Plausible. In April of 1912, a sailor came forward claiming that he had slit the throat of Dr. Kanabe. His name was Seth Nichols, and he claimed that he had been paid to kill her for $1,500. Whoever this person was, he had joined Nichols at the Delaware Flats and watched as Nichols killed the doctor. The police listened for a while, and the sailor did have a sister in Indianapolis, but they eventually decided he was lying. Although Nichols' wife did die in a similar way. And when I saw that report, it didn't say whether it had happened before Dr. Kanabe's death or after. And it, that's all they'd said. It was just hmm. she had died in a similar way. So I was like, OK. <laughs> a favorite spot for Dr. Kanabe to visit in the few hours that she wasn't working was a German cultural center called, called Das Deutsch Haas. This is today the Anthenaeum and the Rathskeller and one of the places said to be haunted by the doctor's spirit. She had gotten into a heated debate with a man at the center, and some people thought that this carried over into the murder. Had he killed her because of the fight? The police eventually tossed out this lead as well. The case was growing cold at this point, and a group of female doctor friends of Dr. Kanabe hired a private investigator. This was Detective Harry Webster, and based on his research, the police had another suspect. The police arrested Dr. William B. Craig. This was a local man with a successful veterinarian practice. He had also been Dr. Kanabe's fiancé. Their romance was not a well-known fact, which seems weird. Those that did know about it claimed it was volatile. The story goes that the engagement was called off a few days before the murder and that Dr. Craig planned to marry another woman. Nobody really knew about the engagement, but Dr. Kanabe had ordered a dress. And seeing as how she was a seamstress, it had to have been a special dress because she could just make her own. Right. When the police talked to his maid, she told them that Craig had left the morning after the murder with a bundle of stuff that the police thought was evidence. And she said he'd been kind of secretive about whatever it was. And she also had heard Dr. Kanabe and Dr. Craig arguing. I don't know the details on that. If Dr. Kanabe was at the house and she heard them arguing at the house, I'm not sure. An undertaker named Alonzo Ragsdale was found to have the bloody silk kimono that Dr. Kanabe had worn while she was murdered. And he claimed that Dr. Craig had paid him to remove the kimono from the scene. So basically hide the evidence for me. Right. Both men were charged and the prosecutor claimed that the neck wound pointed to a veterinarian as the murderer because it was similar to what they call a sheep nick or a sheep cut. I think that's used to slaughter them, maybe? Possibly. Yeah, I would imagine so. There was not much evidence, not even circumstantial. A bloody fingerprint in Dr. Kanabe's apartment was never taken for evidence. Obviously, fingerprinting was pretty new at this time, but it still was something being used. Witnesses left town and disappeared, and the housekeeper refused to testify. Did they not subpoena people? 
back at that time. That's what I was wondering because they <laughs> said crazy. that she refused to come into the court. And I'm like, well, if they subpoena you, it doesn't matter right. if you refuse. I don't know Bizarre. law and when different things happened in the law. Sure. Due to lack of any real evidence, both Alonzo and Dr. Craig were acquitted. The main thing that became very clear through the investigation and prosecution is that Dr. Kanabe was treated more like someone who deserved what she got than a victim. Was this just a random act of violence or was she targeted for being a strong-willed woman who demanded to be treated as an equal and believed in teaching people how they could safely keep themselves healthy in their environment and when having sex? Or was she targeted for being a lesbian? There are those who believe that she preferred the love of women and she was considered masculine. No one was ever convicted and the case remains unsolved to this day. Dr. Kanabi was buried at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis in an unmarked grave. Her case file was destroyed in a flood in 1977. In 2016, Nikki Kabrowski published the book, She Sleeps Well, The Extraordinary Life and Murder of Dr. Helene Elise Hermine Kanabe. In it, she concludes that Dr. Craig was indeed the killer. The author also paid for a headstone for Dr. Kanabe. And that's awesome. Yeah, because I can't believe this woman was buried without I know. a headstone for Agreed. the kind of history that Horrible. she had in Indiana. It's just like, wow. We don't know a whole lot about this woman. I read so many different newspaper articles and reports and different things. I have not read the book, which maybe gets a little bit more into this. Nobody is sure that she ever even had a relationship with Dr. Craig. Some people think that this might have been a professional disagreement as well. If he is the culprit, which it kind of looks like he was, maybe it was some kind of a professional disagreement because that could be just as a, a rage kind of killing as Certainly. something that is a relationship kind of killing. Right. And I don't know if she really did have relationships with women or was that something they were throwing around because she was a strong-willed woman. So if you're a strong-willed woman, you must be sure. butch and that makes you gay and trying to talk her down in that kind exactly. of a way. Exactly. So I'm not sure where that all came about. But as I was reading stuff, all of a sudden I started reading that and I'm going, well, if she was engaged to this guy, why would they be saying that, you know, she was a lesbian? But then I was like, well, maybe it was just because she was a strong willed woman. And yeah, seemed she was more, powerful, quote unquote, masculine. But the pictures I've seen of her, I mean, she just, you know, typical woman with a bun and a dress. So <laughs> not that you could ever tell by looks anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know any gay women or women that prefer the company of women that wear buns, you know, in their hair or anything like that, except for the one sitting right across from me right now. You look at me with my messy high bun. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> I throw my hair up. After the murder, Lynn B. Milliken decided to rebrand the Delaware Flats as a hotel. So remember back, this is the person who had owned it at that time. Exactly. This would be Hotel Barton with a main lobby, kitchen and dining room on the first floor. Renovations included fireplaces, decorative mirrors and egg and dart molding to the lobby. Since the basement could not be used for rooms, Milliken turned it into a commercial space. The hotel changed its name to Barton House Hotel in the early 1960s, but the hotel was on its way out, and by 1966, it was a nursing home. The Salvation Army eventually turned it into low-income housing, and through all of this, there were stories of unexplained things happening. The first floor here is incredibly haunted. Dr. Kanabe's spirit has been seen here, particularly in the area where her apartment had been located. But in other areas, residents complain of lights turning on and off by themselves and disembodied footsteps are heard nearly everywhere. And I believe this is what the Delaware Flats is today still is the Salvation Army building that's called the Barton. As we mentioned before, Dr. Kanabe enjoyed hanging out at the Das Deutsch Haas, which is today the Antheneum. This place reminds us of the Cuban club inside. 
it really had that look. It's got the old carved wood. Sure. It's just a big building that you could tell was a, a gathering place that has all kinds of different things in it. And yep. When they were walking through it, I was just like, oh, this looks like the Cuban Club. <laughs> it looks like someplace I've been. Which makes sense because it was the exact same thing as this, only this one's sure. a German one. Exactly. The doctor loved dancing and eating here, but this was also a location where medical classes were conducted as well as autopsies, which is a little odd. I guess they just figured if they've got all the tools here and... We're going to dance and eat and then dissect some people. (laughs) Hey, sounds like our kind of party. (laughs) Or maybe dissect first and then dance and eat. Maybe a little drinking afterwards. I don't know. It just struck me as odd. (laughs) The autopsies and dissections were stopped over time when there was a grave robbing scandal that was revealed. In 1902 alone, 315 bodies were stolen in three months and two dozen people were arrested. That's a lot of dead bodies it to sure be is. digging up. I mean, do they not have anybody patrolling? If the, You know, you would think that a few would, would come up missing. Especially in three months. I and, mean, I don't know how many cemeteries there are in Indianapolis, especially back in 1902. But yeah, you would but think you would imagine a cops outside yeah, of them or something. Yeah, something. Something if they're having that many in such a short time. It was such an issue in Indianapolis that when John Dillinger was buried there in 1934, his family had several tons of concrete poured on top of his burial to keep grave robbers out. The Anthenaeum is located at 401 East Michigan Street and was built from 1893 to 1898 in the Romanesque style. It's a gorgeous red brick building with flattened columns on the front of the building, pillars, and arches. There was a gymnasium, bowling alley, ballroom, restaurant, and of course, beer hall. I mean, it's a German (laughs) club. Come on. A fireplace inside features Dante's Inferno. Today, the restaurant is now the Rathskeller, and a YMCA occupies the gymnasium there, and there also is the Basile Theater. The new version of the Ghost Hunters visited this location in October of 2019. The president of the Athenaeum Foundation is Craig Mintz, and he said, Since my first day on the job, all I've heard about from the staff and tenants of the Athenaeum are stories of all the spirits that call the building home. Me being a bit intrigued and a tad scared, I felt like I wanted to know more about the spirits and their stories. Having heard that A&E was resurrecting ghost hunters, I felt like there was no better team of folks to help us get to the bottom of this mystery. And so Greg and the crew go on down to this place. It is a gorgeous building. It really is. Just from the outside alone. Shannon Poole, who works in the building, described to the ghost hunters her experience of seeing a shadowy ghost from the neck and shoulders up. Craig told Greg and the crew that people feel very uncomfortable in the attic where costumes used to be stored. There was no explainable EMF in this area because, you know, they go around and test it just to make sure there's nothing else setting it off. And as we noticed, wasn't it at the Cuban Club that we were getting the EMF going off like crazy in the theater? Oh, that's right. Near the wall, my dad kept going, look at my EMF. And I was like, oh, there's got to be some kind of electrical behind this Right. He was really interested. And I I was kind of explaining how the the wires will run. But then Mm -hmm. there was was another portion where I was walking in the middle of the room. And I don't know, you know, maybe something in the floor or the ceiling. But I kept getting it to Mm -hmm. go off, too. A spirit in there did use the EMF to communicate with the crew. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. There are ghost tours that go inside the building, too, and have even hosted overnights in October. One of these tours is hosted by Unseen Press, which is co-owned by Michael and Nikki Kabrowski. So these names are coming up and I'm looking at it going, wait a minute, she's the woman who wrote the The book book about Dr. Kanabe. And then I also happen to have an encyclopedia of all the haunted places in Indiana. She's the one who wrote that too. I was looking at it and I looked at the author and I went, oh, so these people know a thing or two about the haunts and stuff here. 
and especially about Dr. Kanabe. They claim the people have seen shadow figures in the theater and heard disembodied whispers. A dancing couple has been seen on the stage in the theater, and the woman is always wearing a blue dress. Paperwork goes missing, and tables that were set and ready for service the night before are found unset the next day. One of the spirits here is believed to belong to a man named Jolly Werner, who had been drinking too much and fell into the fireplace and died. He is generally seen in the restaurant. And of course, the restless spirit of Dr. Kanabe has been seen here as a full-bodied apparition in the east section on the first floor and second floors. She was seen in the building as soon as two weeks after her death. I thought that was pretty incredible yeah. because we'll hear these hauntings like years down the road and two weeks after she's passed away, people are already saying we saw her. You can imagine what this would, how this would strike them because oh, they'd sure. be like, wait a minute, is, is that her? She, wait, I, I thought she died. <laughs> I thought we went to her funeral. Well, yeah. actually, they probably didn't. She probably didn't even have one. She didn't have a marker. You think they had a funeral for her? Well, I don't know. They might have. Because you mm. know what? At most, to be honest, most people who are getting buried don't have markers when they're being buried. Oh, the markers usually come true. after the fact later because yeah. it takes a while to get them made. True. Back to that EMF communicating in the attic, the crew asked if it was a female and it confirmed twice that it was a female. The spirit also confirmed that it taught about health and that it was a teacher and a doctor. And the way I like that they conducted this EMF session that they did is they were asking a lot of, I think they called them like negative questions. So they were asking other questions too, just to make sure they weren't getting responses to everything they were saying. That's awesome. It's a very good idea. Yeah. So they good first thing, to investigate. The first thing they asked was, did you help people in the gymnasium with working out or playing sports or something like that? And the EMF just sat there for five minutes and didn't mm -hmm. do anything. And so then right after that, they said, did you teach health here? And it was like, boom, immediately answered yes. So then they continued on with that, asking, well, were you a teacher of health? Yes. And then were you a doctor? Yes. And then they decided not to ask any questions about the murder because they were trying to be respectful, which I thought was exactly, exactly how we how handled Velisca. Yes. <laughs> we didn't mention anything about dying. You know, are you dead? We didn't even ask if they were dead or. Right. I didn't even I, I did not want to ask anything along those lines just because they're children. And I'm yeah. sure that there's plenty of people that go in there and ask that question all way, the time. Or even if it's not harassing, it's just I mean, if I had been murdered that way, especially as a child, I would not want somebody to be asking me questions about that. Well, in the way it happened, they probably maybe the one little girl saw the killer, but I don't think True. anybody really saw who killed him. So it doesn't make much sense to ask him who killed you. Right. What happened to Dr. Helene Kanabe was horrible. She was in the prime of her life, only 35, and she'd been incredibly successful in her career when someone robbed her of that life. No one was brought to justice. This would definitely cause a spirit to be restless. Is Dr. Kanabe's ghost haunting these two locations? That... that is for you to decide. Well, Kelly, this is one of those cold cases that unfortunately I don't think it's ever going to be solved, especially since her case file went completely gone in 1977. Right, in the flood. That pretty much shut the door on it. And even at this point, if they do figure out who did it, you can't bring them to justice because they're already dead and exactly. everybody connected would be. So unfortunately, there's not much they're going to be able to do. And I don't know if they'd be able to give her spirit any peace because even apparently putting a, a new marker on her grave hasn't helped to settle her either. We want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Kelly, you and I did a live show on Facebook with Hillbilly Horror Stories 
Yeah, it was so much fun ago. with Jerry and Tracy. Yeah, we've, you can either watch it at the History Ghost Bump fan page on Facebook. We also have it at the very top of the Spooktacular crew. We've loaded it up to the YouTube channel. So there's a lot of places for you to watch it. It was great fun. It was over an hour. And part of the reason why we did it is because we were all supposed to be in Louisville doing a live show together. Yes, we were. And then we were going to go over and do a tour and then investigate Waverly Hill Sanatorium. But clearly we had to cancel all of those plans. So this was the next best thing. And I think we had a lot of fun doing it. We definitely did. So check that out if you have time. We did get a couple of emails. The first one was from Leanne. And she was just talking about the Trans-Allegheny episode that we did, Kelly. She said, Hi, Diane and Kelly. I just want to thank you for your respectful approach to places like the Trans-Allegheny Insane Asylum. I love the things I learn when listening to your podcast. You have a wonderful show. I've been to this location with my sister and her wife, who both work in the mental health field. We did not experience anything paranormal, but to walk with them through this place taught me how misunderstood mental illness was and unfortunately still is. Thank you, ladies, for being so wonderful. So thank you, Luanne. Oh, thank you for that email. We always try to be as respectful and careful as we can with these kinds of definitely. topics. because They're definitely sensitive. And then we heard from Hannah. And she said, hello, Diane and Kelly. I've been listening to the show for about a year, and I love how calm and relaxing your voices are and the incredible content of haunted locales I've not yet heard of. And I love doing places that people haven't heard of. Absolutely. I have a longer tale related to the town you mentioned in the last episode. In your Spanish flu episode, you mentioned a mass grave was recently found in School Kill Haven, Pennsylvania. And I've been told by people who are local that we're not quite saying it correctly, but <laughs> that's as I'm shocked, as I can get it. <laughs> shocked, I tell you. <laughs> I went to high school in School Kill Haven, or Haven as the locals call it, which is so much easier to say. So I'm going to call it the Haven now. <laughs> Definitely. I lived out in the country with my family, but as you can imagine, spent a lot of time in town with friends for sports, etc. When they found the mass grave, I couldn't believe there were national news reports on my hometown and the horrors our tiny bucolic town experienced during the outbreak. That's not where the spooky stories end, though. There are many haunted locations throughout the county and so many sad deaths related to coal mining and industry. To be honest, it is still quite economically depressed and filled with hardship. But if you talk to anyone about the paranormal in our area, you'll get plenty of stories about another location less than a mile away from where the Spanish flu mass grave was discovered. Rest Haven was an almshouse that transitioned to a nursing home that was essentially on the campus of our local Penn State satellite, built much later, and they now own most of the property. There were many buildings that made up the facility, most of which are no longer there. The main building was demolished when I was in middle school, and to this day, I regret never going and exploring with friends, but I was a big scaredy cat back then. Anyway, many family friends have stories of their moms or aunts working as nurses or health aides at the facility. It was closed and abandoned and became a hot spot for local kids to go and try to scare themselves. But the stories I've heard are absolutely terrifying. Coffee carafts being thrown off the countertop across the room in the employee lounge. Yikes. Residents reporting seeing entities or feeling presences and a general state of unease at basically all times. It has your standard man in black shadow person that appeared before a resident passed with several reports of this shadow person. Faces appearing in windows outside but with no tracks in the snow indicating someone was there as well as black shadowy hands reaching through the wall trying to grab those still living. That Sounds like walking is... down the hallway at Waverly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Oh, my God. That is terrifying. If I started seeing these black shadowy hands coming out of a wall grabbing at me. There's a potter's field and cemetery attached that were easier to explore for middle school students. And a lot of creepy encounters have been reported. Apparently, there is was a bridge there that is a hotbed of activity as it leads from the building to the field. The last place the bodies would go before their final resting place. One of my neighbors grew up in a house on Center Avenue, the main drag where the mass grave and rest haven reside, and he spent a decent amount of time in the intermediate area. 
He was the source for the reports in this paragraph, as he had older brothers who were able to explore more of the area simply due to the time that passed. By the time kids my age were able to go inside, a lot of vandalism happened, but some of the boys in my class went and found old medical records with treatments that were abhorrent. And it is amazing, when they abandoned these places, how they just left the records there. Right. Malvern Manor was full of them when we went there, he had said. Right. I remember that. And I mean, they were very cautious. They destroyed the stuff that they needed to destroy or they filed it away. But, you know, they were very aware of the HIPAA laws and not giving out any information. Yeah. Josh was really respectful about it. He kept stuff so that he could verify stories, hauntings, that kind of thing. But yeah, he doesn't make that available to people to just check out what was going on with people and their treatments and stuff. One of his older brothers also reported going to the woods near the cemetery with friends and found a fresh ceremony site with animal skulls, bones, candles, and occult symbols. While I'm willing to chalk that up to the bored teenagers in the town, it's still eerie to find. That is true. Doesn't necessarily mean they were having satanic rituals out there. Right. Could have been some kids messing around. I wouldn't want to find it. Nor would I. (laughs) The initial accounts of the place sound ghastly, and unfortunately the infirm were not treated like humans, so why it is haunted is pretty easy to see. It's a local legend, and everyone knows someone with a story about the place. The coal region, as it is affectionately called by locals, is filled with spooky and spiritual stories. And I think it's because there's so many of those mines there. (laughs) You know how I feel about those mines. Yep. The immigrants who came here to settle at the turn of the century and in the years preceding did not have an easy go. And corruption was and is still rampant in the area. Is it haunted? Are the spirits still around the area? That's for you to decide. But the answer from locals is a resounding yes. (laughs) <laughs> as you know i love it when people end yes. their emails that way and then she just goes on to say thanks for the podcast and while information on our tiny town is hard to come by i hope you can leisurely research some of our stories my jaw dropped when i heard you say my hometown name and your reporting was impeccable awesome thank that's you why, so much for that feedback that's why i love doing some of these places that you're like nobody's heard of this is anybody going to care there's always somebody who lives near some place that we're talking about that just exactly thrilled to death And then Chelsea Smith in the Spooktacular crew had pointed out this little thing. She posted this. Now that we've had a small taste of quarantine, imagine being an intelligent spirit stuck in one place for hundreds of years with nobody to interact with. So now that we all kind of feel like what it's like to be under a somewhat house arrest and can't go anywhere. Imagine if that was your eternity. Of course, I'd be somebody, you know, pulling the pranks and stuff like that, because I I have to stay entertained. That must be why they do it. <laughs> I mean, you got to do something. Definitely. Especially if you're just like, oh, here I am bored, same day, same thing, different day. And then Zach Bagans walks in. Oh, gosh, I'd have too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> we want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank a couple of our executive producers for increasing their donations. Chelsea Smith has upped her donation. She's going to be staying in a garden tomb. But just as happened with Karen, Chelsea's getting a special silver-plated door put on her garden tomb as well. I heard Mort talking about it. He's so excited to have these extra activities. And then we have Donna Litchfield, and she will be moving to a garden tomb. Thank you so much, ladies. We really appreciate it. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.
The KGB materials claim that a low-flying spaceship in the shape... <clears throat> my throat. I'm going through puberty. Oh, it's my turn. I'm sorry. Duh. Wake up. <laughs> <laughs> whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> the killer had started on one side of her throat, taking care not to cut her carotid eye carotid. Taking care not to cut her carotid artery. God, I cannot say those two together. Battery. My stupid tongue. The first person they treated as a suspect. One of the spirits here is believed to belong to a man named Jolly Werner. Jolly Rancher. One. <laughs> He's a gay farmer. Oh my God. <laughs> Isn't that what you used to call Jolly Ranchers? No. You never called them gay farmers? No. <laughs> we did. Never heard that before. <laughs> Good grief. Okay, let me compose myself.